The following is brought to you by Total Seal Piston Rings, the leader in ring seal technology. TotalSeal.com Hidden Horsepower by Total Seal is back. Hello, everyone. I'm Joe Costello, and we have got another great show for you engine buffs out there. The people who want to know how and why engines make power. Hidden Horsepower by Total Seal gets the job done. And, of course, my co-host, he's the director of technical sales at Total Seal, Mr. Keith Jones, is here. Keith, hello and welcome. Well, hi, everybody. Thanks, Joe, for the introduction. Uh, glad to be back. Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day here in Phoenix. Looks like we're going to hit 80 for the first time this year. Trying to get all you Midwesterners jealous. Uh, and and my sincerest condolences to those in, in the Tennessee area that have gotten hit with the uh, tornadoes. What a tragedy. Uh, it, it, like I say, it's a blessing to live in a state where not much happens other than heat. That is a fact, Keith. We have got a great opportunity this week. We have been running the all-stars of engine building on hidden horsepower. We have got another one today. John Cozzi, John Cozzi Racing Engines. He's a nine-time engine master. Started out with Dino Don Nicholson. So here we are, back to our drag racing roots. Yeah, and here we are. We're with John Cozzi. Uh, those of you out there uh, familiar with the name, know him, the man, you know, the beast, the legend, nine-time engine master's champion, you know, king of the big Ford. I, I don't know what to say. As I you know, was talking to Joe about interviewing John, I said he's, he's the grumpy Jenkins of today. Uh, and I mean that in the, you know, in the, in the kindest, most complimentary way because John's a thinker. He, he comes up with ideas. That, you know, it's those ideas that you look at afterwards. You go, well, I get that. I, I could have done that. But it, it wasn't, you know, you that came up with it first. It was John that came up with it first. And, uh, again, anybody in this industry that, that doesn't know that name, you need, to, you need to Google him and see the things that this man's done because he's really done a lot and really pushed this industry forward. Uh, some of the stuff he's done on Engine Masters, you know, the Pontiac especially. I mean, some of the things John's done there just kind of blew my mind. <laughs> it was in an awesome way. Very excited to speak with him seconds away. We do want to encourage everybody listening to Hidden Horsepower to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast. Write a review if you like it, and check back when new episodes drop. We're going to have more of the all-stars of engine building. So without further ado, let's bring him on the show from John Cozzi Racing, a nine-time engine master, Mr. John Cozzi. John, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks. I'm glad to be here. So all those things Keith said, do you agree with him? Yeah, I, I, I was wondering who they were talking about there, but yeah, I guess most of that's true. It takes a while, but um, yep, that's me. So Keith, where do we start with John in that his experience is so wide-ranging uh, from early days of Pro Stock, but I, I have to say my personal experience has been with his mountain motor engines. Like, I see them everywhere, and I am you know widely impressed and frankly, you know, an innovator from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, go walk around, the, you know, the, we'll say the pro mod pits. And, you know, my first time many years ago, you know, you know, experiencing John stuff was with the IHRA pro stock stuff. And, and you could literally walk through the pits and you know, do inventory, you know, yep. Cosimotor, 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 you know, 
another brand, Akazi Motor. Uh, it, it, you know, just they were everywhere. You know, not to say that he owned it, but uh, you know, it, it, pretty much because <laughs> they're everywhere. And 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 John's just taken that knowledge and expanded it into everything. I mean, from you know, like you and I, John and I were talking at the PRI show. He's working on you know Mercury Marine outdoor boat motors these days, trying to work on that. And I know he's done a ton of stuff with you know GTR Nissan engines for the you know for the guys. You know, they're doing those flying mile runs and. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. John's a real innovator, a real thinker. Uh, I've been privileged to sit on some of his AETC conferences that he's done, and you know, like I said, he, he comes up with some pretty neat ideas and some pretty qu- pretty crazy ways of of proving those ideas. And I, I especially remember the one uh, John talking about drilling the hole in an intake manifold and sticking his finger in it while it's running so he could feel the pulsations through the intake track. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you go there and you go, well, that makes perfect sense. But you know, again, John's the one that did it. Well, you know that that deal was a little bit on the dangerous side, and uh, you, you can find some you can find some videos uh, on YouTube if you look hard. Um, but uh, mostly it was for AETC conference, that, you know, presentation that I did, and I wanted something good to to, to show, and um, I always kind of wanted to do that and to see what those pulses felt like in there. Um, so if anybody is, is trying to imagine what we did, we we had uh, put a in a tunnel ram on an engine that was about a 900 horse engine. Uh, we we put a little eyelet in the in the middle of the manifold or one of the runners, and uh, you could put your finger in it. It just it was uh, like a little grommet, and it had a hole that was a little bigger than your finger. And when you put your finger in it, it closed the hole off, and and you could feel the air and the pulses going up and down. Um, and it was it really it wasn't anything like we thought it would be. It was completely different than than what we were expecting but you know before it was over we had probably everybody in our shop did it at least once or twice with it and we made full board dyno runs on the motor um and of course we're worried about it blowing up so we had a quarter inch steel plate all the way up from the floor to the manifold so if it it shot parts out it wouldn't hurt wouldn't hurt us too bad you know but um it's completely completely different than what you might think um it's cold the minute you go wide open with it, it drops about 30 degrees because of the, uh, you know, refrigeration effect of the, of the expanding gases and stuff. It's just, but the pulses w- w- was what really got to us. It would, if you held your finger the wrong way, it would almost break your finger. And it wasn't going down. If you closed your eyes and tried to imagine, it was violent both directions, and it was more violent going back up the manifold than it was going down that shockwave and um it um i it's unexplainable really it, it, but if you held your finger sideways i feel sure you would have dislocated a knuckle um but you couldn't hold your finger steady it went up and down with the pulses and it was wiggling around it was something allow me to jump in and say the guests on the show are not uh, telling you to do anything that you should not be doing and i'll always take safety and precaution Thank you, Total Seal. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Keith, a question yeah, for... Big, big disclaimer across the bottom, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you don't want to do that. We we thought a little bit afterwards about, you know, what happens when you break an, a valve off in a motor. Sometimes all that trash goes up the port, and it goes back on the manifold. So, you know, I was I was really glad that we never... And I think we're probably done doing that. I don't think I expect to do that again. But, you know, you, you might just lose a finger doing that if you're not careful. So... <laughs> Not a good idea, but uh, it, it did. It was pretty enlightening. It sure wasn't anything like a flow bench. 
I can't imagine. John, let, let's uh, start from the beginning, as we have with all of our uh, guests on the show, in that you're, uh, you worked with Dino Don, uh, starting off in NHRA Pro Stock back in the day, factory hot rods, that kind of stuff. But where did your original passion for engines or racing or, you know, what was first? Where did it start? Well, I, I, I think I grew up in the right part of the country for that. I was in, in northern Ohio and around there in Detroit. This was in the, you know, I became driving age about 1968, and that was just the, the two or three golden years there for supercars coming out of the factory and stuff. So the timing was perfect, and I always liked mechanical things. And, and uh, you know, I, I hung out with guys that were all motorheads and car nuts and stuff, and we just started building our own hot rods, you know. And by the time I was 16 or 17, we all had race cars. You know, the, the good thing was, in, in those years, I worked at a lawnmower shop, and I could, I could field a race car off of my lawnmower money. You know, which today would be a little bit tough. You know, we we kind of progressed along and just kept building other cars and building motors for people, and and uh, uh, you know didn't have quite enough equipment to really do things 100% right. But but uh, that's pretty much the way it started. And then when I got in with Dino Don, I worked with him for several years, and then then um, in 1980 started my own business back up, and so ever since I've been on my own since 1980. The evolution of parts and pieces, piston rings in particular, something we talk about here on Hidden Horsepower. Uh, I think about what you had to use then as opposed to what you have to use now. Talk a little bit about that evolution. Well, um, you know, there's, there's a couple things that have happened. Uh, and, and, and I don't think anybody has any better stuff, really, than, than Total Seals rings and their knowledge that they help you with. And, but there's there's a couple of different things that are really important, and you know the the one of them is the is the piston, and the other is the the honing, and and then you know what, what you're using for rings. But it's, it's back a long time ago when we were building engines, we, we certainly weren't too sharp on how to hone a block. Certainly, we could make it look, and it might look exactly the same as it does today, but all the numbers weren't exactly right, and you would never probably do two that were the same. But um, and but the big thing was the quality of the rings has come along so so far, and at the same time though, the the most huge thing is the piston companies are doing such a better job with ring grooves than they used to do, and there was a time, I guess it's it's been almost twenty years ago, but. Uh, I went to Rear Morrison one Saturday. My son was playing travel hockey out there, and I, I went to visit him, and they were putting ring grooves in some pistons on their big lathe, and uh, the, a guy was, was sitting there really delicately putting ring grooves in. And when I came home, I started thinking about it more and more, and I started checking stuff on some of the pistons we were using. And you know, we bought a bunch of little pin gauges and stuff, and we were putting them in the ring grooves. And you know, you put a pin gauge in there that's the right size, and it would get it into the middle of the groove halfway to the bottom, and all of a sudden it would get tight, you know. And if it was toward the outside, it would wiggle a little bit, and you put it all the way to the bottom, it wouldn't even go in. So, you know, we almost had some pistons that, well, we didn't almost. That we we for sure had some pistons that, that had a groove that was almost like a miniature uh, keystone groove, you know. It was it was uh, wider at the outside than it was on the inside. And, and you know, really when you get down to it, the, to me, that's the most important sealing area of the whole engine. More than the cylinder walls, more than anything else, is the bottom of the ring, and and the the uh, groove that it sits on. And the, you know, in other words, the 
the the land between the top and the second ring, that surface there and the surface of that ring is is so hugely important that if it's off a little bit, it'll it, it'll blow all the oil out of the pan. It'll blow it out of the valve covers, you know. And so we learned about things like that. But but what happened was, you know, we went and bought a lathe, and we used to put our own ring grooves in. But you know, about really probably about 15 years ago, it seems like all the piston companies really got good at doing grooves, and you know, they they just use really good equipment. I think you know some of them use. Uh, uh, CBD cutters or something, you know, diamond cutters and stuff like that. And, and uh, the surface is so good anymore, so it, it makes everybody look good. It makes the engine builder look good. It makes, <laughs> you know, makes Keith look good because their rings really do good on those things. And then, you know, Total Seal does a good job of, of lapping the bottom of the rings and the diamond lap stuff and all that. So, so the piston companies came up to speed, then the ring companies came up to speed, and after all that, then people got a little bit better with figuring out cylinder wall finish and how important that was, and uh, grooves and how deep the valleys are in the grooves and how much they hold oil and stuff. So all those three things in the last 10 or 15 years have really come together, and today if you'd, you'd, you'd have to be pretty lame if you didn't get the cylinders to seal up good. Well, well, I agree with John, and I'm going to touch on a couple of things. He said, uh, and, and absolutely the truth, you know, we keep kind of pushing each other. You know, the, you know, the, the, the ring grooves in the pistons started getting better, and that forced us to make better rings, and then we were making better rings, and they could make grooves, and that forced them to make their grooves better. And, you know, it's just this, this constant, you know, improvement, and it's not just pistons and rings, it's everything. You know, you think of valve train technology from 20 years ago compared to today. And, and as John said, you know, each time we made it better, well, you revealed the next shortcoming, and then we started looking at cylinder, you know, finishes and, you know, how can we improve that? Because, you know, the blow-by is better, but it's not as good as it should be. And, you know, we start looking at the finishes and, and then, you know, with the modern machines, bore geometry, how straight and round the bores are. I mean, all of those things, you know, every piece of this, like we've talked about before, it's links in the chain. And we have to elevate all of them together, you know, just making a better ring isn't going to solve the issue. Just making the groove better isn't solving the issue. We have to, they all have to work together. So we have to elevate all of them at the same time. And, and like John said, if we get the, you know, we do such a good job with the ring, if the cylinder finishes right, it's pretty much instant seal. You know, there isn't a lot of break-in time involved these days if everything is done correctly. But I also wanted to touch on the ring groove thing. Go ahead, John. Oh, I was going to say a lot of the blocks we use today are much better too. You know, years ago we were using iron blocks that were they got awful thin on us, and we weren't really good about you know knowing that something that was that thin was going to be flexing around, and that made things worse also. Oh, absolutely. The the, the blocks are so much better. But one of the things that you touched on, uh, and, and there's the simple tool out there, the gauge pin. Uh, and, and it's something every engine builder, and I know John has them and beyond, uh, but every engine builder should have. I mean, if you're buying pistons that, let's just say, you know, have a 043.5 ring groove, you know, which is a common top groove size today, you should have a 43.5 gauge pin. You know, they're not expensive. You can buy them at a you know, ton of different places. And where I run into this a lot is on, on rebuilds. I'll get a customer that rebuilds an engine, and, you know, it just doesn't come back to where it was before. It just, the blow-by is not as good. The power is not as good. It's just not as good. And more times than I can tell you, you know, we, we spend time on the phone. We go over bore finishes, how to hone it, what kind of braking oil did you use, you know, yada, yada, yada. And when they finally get down to it, they check that ring group. You know, the piston might have... Uh, 
Yeah, I can tell a quick story. I know Lance Line, Jason's brother, had an engine at 150 passes on a super comp motor. Simple rebuild, nothing special, won't come back. Blow-by's not as good, vacuum's not as good, nothing's as good as it was. We, we spent a lot of time on the phone talking about it. And finally, I said, Lance, you need to gauge pin those grooves. I'm, I'm telling you, the groove is, as John said, it looks like a keystone. It's turned into a wedge. It's not flat on the bottom anymore. Sure enough, he got a gauge pin, checked it. He put it in, like John said, nice and tight in the bottom, but yet it's wiggling up and down at the front. He checks. He's got about a thou and a half of taper in the land and only 150 runs. Uh, he bought a new set of pistons. They were just a shelf piston, put it all back together, same rings, didn't change the rings, and bang, everything came right back in. So that's, a, a, a we'll say, a, a word for everybody to be looking at. If you're going to reuse the pistons, uh, you need to double-check those grooves before you put it back in. Make sure it hasn't hammered the ring grooves out because, if you've got a little detonation in an engine, a little fuel wash, you can take the grooves out pretty quick, and you can't see it with the naked eye. You need to check them. Uh, that's just something to look at. And Sorry for being so long-winded, but John touched that's on a okay. subject I hadn't but, thought about, and, yeah. and I wanted well, to hit it'll that. Bend them. Yeah, it'll bend the oh. ring groove down a little bit. Sometimes they rise up because they overheat up there, and it, you know you, you don't really know exactly which happened. But if, it, if it's bent down and angled down a little bit, you've got big trouble, you know, and it's like it, it's odd because you could take and break a valve off in an engine and and have all kinds of pecker marks everywhere on the cylinder walls and you could hone it back and it, it looks like somebody blasted it with a shotgun and it'll still make pretty good power, you know. It mm. won't be as near as bad as you think, but if that land isn't right, like I said, the most important area in the whole motor, I think. But if that land isn't right underneath that top ring, it's not going to make any power. It just won't. It just blows all the fire right by it. You know, the rings don't push out or nothing works right. And uh, so it's huge. It's, it's huge. John, let's start talking about one of the things that I think you are uh, perhaps most known for. I definitely want to spend a little time in the uh, marine market side of things in that uh, it's got to be very difficult to make an engine live out there on the water. But I want to talk mountain motors, giant cubic inches, okay. and the early uh, days of, of them, because you were in, in many ways a pioneer. There were a couple. And uh, the Boss 9, well-known out there, the valve covers, of course. But just take me to those early days of accomplishing that. That had to be very, you know, you had to be creative, I'm sure. Well, everybody, you know, started with cast iron blocks. And at one time, you know, 500, about 500 inches was really big. And uh, when I worked for Dino Don, we built a 516-inch aluminum engine that was based out of a Ford uh, 429, 460 style with uh, aluminum super cobra jet heads that somebody found around at Hallman Moody or something like that. But then we raced against Jenkins, and Jenkins had a 494 big-end Chevy. And, you know, it kind of, that was that was about 78 or so, and, and it kind of just kept getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger from there. But uh, we raced several years with 588-inch cast iron engines, and uh, I think some of those had 5-inch strokes in them, which was huge at the time. That was in the early 80s. And then, you know, we got up to about 650s or so. And then it seems to me like we went right about from, you know, high 600s and all the way to 800 inches all at once, you know. Um, so we there weren't too many 700-inch ones. We went all the way to 800, like, within a couple of years' time. But, you, you know, you're just building taller deck blocks and bigger bores. Uh, at one point, we made the bore center a little bit bigger. So we could have bigger bores in them, but basically the motor wasn't much different as far as uh, you know. It wasn't much longer or anything. It was just the cylinders were moved a bit, but but uh, 
you know, they just, everything progressed along. They just kept getting bigger. And then along with that, we had to use different parts, uh, you know, uh, different camshafts and different amounts of compression, bigger valves. Everything just kept getting bigger and bigger for a while. And then it had pretty much leveled out about 15 years ago. We're, you know, right now we're almost like the 500-inch stuff where, where you're really struggling to make them any better. They're, I mean, we can make little tiny gains, but we've pretty much got all the low-hanging fruit. That's way behind us. You know, everything now is a struggle to make power, uh, to make it better. And on that note, early on we were having a conversation about secrets in the business, things that are proprietary, that you want to keep secret, that you may or may not want to put out there on this podcast. And you were very open about it. You said uh, flat out that uh, you're pretty much, uh, I won't go so far as to say an open book, but you're, are, you, you're beyond that. Well, I mean, there's, there's not enough people coming into the, into the business of building these big engines. But the, the thing is, it's kind of funny. You see people hiding stuff on, when they're building engines and all. And most, most of the time, they're hiding it from guys that already know anyway. You know, it's like there's only two or three guys you wouldn't want to be looking at your stuff, and they've already looked at it one way or another. So, you know, it's, uh, you just have to hope you keep finding new stuff, and, and uh, there's, there's no real big secrets in, in a lot of these engines anymore. There's been too many people worked on them, and some, some, one, of them, one of your customers will think maybe that somebody else could do better, and they send it down to somebody else. and It all gets mixed around, and pretty soon everybody knows that what everybody's got anyway. But, but uh, uh, you know, there's really not enough new people working on these. It's not, it's not a real big secret type of deal anymore. Keith, thoughts on the mountain motor stuff? Love them. <laughs> that's, that's the best place for me to start. Love them. I just, it's just, it's just sheer massiveness. You know, I guess is the way to say it. It's just sheer torque. It's just sheer power. Uh, how these things get down the racetrack. It, it, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of reference back to, you know, Matt Hartford, our CEO, cause you know, Matt ran the ADRL series and, you know, he had a big inch motor and, you know, pro stock. And he said, Hey, it's the difference, you know, you know, a, a four stroke dirt bike and a two stroke dirt bike. You know, that 500 inch, you just got to keep it right here. That mountain motor, he goes, I can screw up all day long. And it's just got all the steam in the world to make me look good. And, you know, won a championship doing it. It's just, yeah, I love watching them. It's just sure. It's just sure grunts excitement. Well, they, they turn a lot of RPM anymore as far as a big engine goes. It, they'll maybe go 8,600 or so. And that that's a pretty good load on all your parts in there. Um, oh. You know, with, on a supercharged engine, there's a little bit of cushion of air above the piston helping it slow down just a bit. And mm-hmm. on, you know, on a big inch motor, on overlap, that's naturally aspirated, you know, when the piston's changing direction, on overlap, there's there's nothing to stop it other than the rod and the rod cap. And uh, so it, it puts a huge stress on the on the lower end of the motor trying to trying to change direction all the time. Um, I think that the number is maybe 24,000 pounds of load on the rod bolts, you know, when, it, when it's at top dead center, it's trying to stop it and change it, go back to the bottom. So there's a huge amount of, of uh, force there. It's like a wrist pin lock. The little tiny lock weighs 30 pounds when it's changing direction. That's how much inertia it has. And if the, if the wrist pin locks aren't strong enough, they'll bounce up out of the groove. Things like that. Wow. Things that you don't think about. And I, and I don't know. 
how much a ring a ring is going to weigh more than that. So think about that once. Well, and I'll just touch there. base. What John just said is absolutely true. Uh, I have a customer of mine that did a four nine hundred you know bore motor uh, as far as bore size, and you know tried to turn the thing up really hard as John just indicated over eight thousand RPM. And I actually have it here. I wish everybody could see it, but they didn't do the math calculations like John just talked about. Look at piston speed. And third hit on the dyno, it split the pistons in half inside the oil ring group. So if you can imagine, you know, a top half and a bottom half, kind of like a two-piece diesel piston, uh, didn't really hurt the engine, but it was, it was simply the forces that it was dealing with trying to turn that kind of RPM, moving that much weight, and it, it literally split all the pistons in half. There's the inertia is tremendous. I mean, there's uh, eighty about eighty thousand piston to head clearance total. In other words, if it was a flat top, it'd have forty thousand stack and a forty thousand gasket, and they'll hit. I mean, it's certain they'll they'll hit at eighty, and it's a little bit of it's the aluminum rod getting warmer, but that's only about ten thousandths of it. The rest of it is all that inertia trying to change directions. You know, it's pulling on the crankshaft. It pulls on the crank so hard that it actually shortens the crank up. There's all kinds of things that happen that you never would guess. It's just unreal. It is It is amazing, and, and I am uh, happy that I am doing this because I, I speak well, but there are times like this where, man, I wish I was better at math because being able oh, to do <laughs> some of those calculations, right, like thinking about times the force of gravity and uh, the weight of something that's light increasing exponentially because of the forces it's under. Like I did, just did at 8,600 RPMs, that thing is spinning 143 times a second. Like that doesn't make sense to the normal person. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's hard on those parts. And the, the, it's funny because a turbocharged engine, well, they wouldn't be as big, but a turbocharged engine or something like that has boost. And it, it's actually got a little cushion in there helping the piston slow down when it's changing directions. But with with a big NA, NA motor like that, naturally aspirated, it's it's got nothing to stop it other than the connecting rod. And it's it's trying all it can do to rip the cap off the connecting rod when it's changed direction. It's unbelievable. Good thing we have good thing we have good parts today in connecting rods and and wrist pins and and, and pistons and stuff. Uh, you know the, those companies have really done their homework and made some mighty fine parts. Now let's talk diversity. Another area that you are involved in is offshore and marine uh, water-based horsepower. And that's an area that we have yet to get to, Keith, here on Hidden Horsepower, but we've both been very excited about it because of the undulation of the water, the torture chamber that is the marine industry. I know that they really go over and above to deal with just a, a million different elements that we don't have on asphalt or uh, you know pavement racing, as we would say, drag racing or otherwise. How is it different? building an engine for a marine environment. I knew you do some stuff for offshore power boats. You do some outboard engines. Those are different in and of themselves. But in terms of what we're, we're talking about here, uh, piston rings and uh, seal, it's got to be very challenging. Well, I, I don't really know that there's a lot of the parts were done uh, totally different just because it's going in the water. Um, a lot of the accessories have to be different because they're, if they're salt water, you know, you, uh, everything has to be stainless and, you know you're going to have you're going to have trouble with all the all the bolt-on stuff, but um, some of the engines that we work on are twin turbocharged Mercury Marine engines that are they call them a QC4. It's a 560 inch, you know, all water cooled, uh, completely 
unique engine that Mercury built. It's a real masterpiece of a motor. It's like a huge Coyote Ford. It's twin overhead cam, four valves per cylinder, you know, two water-cooled turbochargers on it. Um, you know, they've got all the coolers on the motor, cooler oil to, or water to oil, water to, or water intercooler, stuff like that, then water to water so so it doesn't use ocean water in the engine. And there's hoses and clamps and, oh, my God. So And all that stuff's beating around. You know, we had some videos in the engine bay of these boats. And uh, this the one that we really started on was this one that's called Miss Geico. It's a big, big yellowish uh, 50-foot catamaran that runs about as fast as 180 out in the ocean where they race them. And, and uh, the, what you see on those videos is all the tanks and the lines and stuff are flying around. And, and then... You know those boats come out of the water. Sometimes they come out of the water ten feet, and uh, so you got your throttle guy, and they're trying to anticipate when it's going to come out of the water, and then they pull the throttle back. But they're turbocharged motors, and those things don't slow down that fast. You know they 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 just keep going. So you know the constant in and out of the water is is terrible on the engine. It's really hard on the crankshafts and the drives and stuff. Um, so it's a long it's a, it's just like a it's a it's a war of attrition if you can just finish you're doing good uh, they'll, they'll they might be 80 mile races sometimes and they're it's like an oval it's like a like a big daytona on the water that's four four mile oval and uh they just they just get beat to death and if if it's a smooth day then it's going to run faster but it's also going to have a lot more RPM, and that's rough on it. And then at the rough day, it'll run slow, but it's beating it up and down, coming out of the water and crashing down. And there's other things going on, like the oil and the oil. They're dry sumps, but the oil in the oil pan isn't necessarily going to the pickups if the thing's got negative Gs and stuff, and it's up in the air. And there's there's all kinds of things that happen that you just don't think about in a drag car. You know, you don't always have g-force holding the oil in the right place in the oil pan and uh so the so the pickups get it and there's there's just it's oh it's, it's i'm not gonna say it's awful because we enjoy it but it's it's tougher than you would think well you know what john just said it, it's you know again I'm, I'm still kind of bathing in what he just said because those are things me being a you know, the we'll say not to say i'm locked into one thing because i i love just about every form of motorsports just saw a thing uh, the other day on cross-cart racing, which was looked wildly exciting. Uh, but like John just said, the negative Gs, and that's one of those things that just, you know, light bulb went off in my head. You know, that boat, you know, as it's coming back down, just like, you know, going up in an airplane and dropping back down, you know, that oil is now, you know, it's weightless, so it's coming up away from the suction lines, trying to wrap itself around the crankshaft. So, I, like I said, I'm just kind of bathing in, in, in the thoughts that he just put across, but... Uh, in the marine world, John, have you? I mean, obviously, working with all the Mercury stuff, and, and I am familiar with that engine, and it is a masterpiece. Uh, but do you do much as far as you know, conventional or traditional, uh, you know, V8, whether it be Chevy or Ford? Not sure if you do much of that with those. No, we do. We we've got three or four of these things. I call them supercats. It's it's actually a it's like it's like pro stock of of the boats. You know, they're kind of a spec engine. They're they're it's about a forty five foot catamaran boat. That uh, it's a big Chevy. They're five, and they have a bunch of rules on them. You know, they're unported heads, but they're uh, they have dominators on them, and and they have a lift rule and RPM rule. It's like seven thousand RPM, and they make about seven hundred and fifty horse. 
And no matter who builds them, they're all pretty close the same. But whoever drives and rigs the boat up and stuff usually ends up being the best guy. But but they're really a cool deal. We you know there's two of them in each boat, and they weigh about ten thousand pounds, and they run about a hundred and hundred and forty or fifty. Now I, I'm going to say hundred and forty. But uh, you know they're out of the they they get up out of the water with that big tunnel down the middle and the air holds them out of the water and and uh, it's and there's usually six or eight of them at a race and the the first couple of laps they're really close it looks like front row at Daytona it's awesome fun to watch and they're 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 neat to work on it's uh, it's it's a really cool deal we we go to some of those races and one of my guys here drove one of them. Um, because they didn't have a driver the one day when they um, were t- doing some testing, so it's it's a cool deal, and we we really enjoy it. Well, I was just curious, John. Do you have to, you know, building that you know that 500 inch piece? Do you find any specific challenges, you know, to that marine environment versus say, you know, the drag racing? You know, better, you know, different rods, pistons. I assume different clearances. You know, I, I'm sure it has some fairly unique challenges. Um, really, the challenge is just making sure it stays together. And, uh, you know, you have to be careful with your valve train and all. Uh, you have to kind of curb yourself from the, the if you if you try and run the harshest stuff you could possibly run so it makes two more foot pounds of torque, you probably won't finish a race, you know. Um, but uh, everything has to be really good parts. I mean, the best the best cranks and rods and pistons and, and stuff like that you can buy. Uh, they're it's they're all they're all heavy duty and um and they'll go seven thousand all day long and they'll run five or six races on a motor before we see it again but it's it's just like a little miniature pro stock deal it just doesn't run quite the r p m it's cool outstanding amazing now what would you say john is the most unique uh, engines that you have been working on. I noticed that the GTR stuff is going on. Uh, that's automotive, though. We talk boats. We talk automotive. But are there any projects that have come across or through your shop over the past year, two years, five years, etc., that was uh, you know pure interest on your part because it was something that was unique? Well, in the last year or so, we've actually been working on some outboards that are. It's kind of a they aren't actually racing these things in a class. They're more racing their buddies. You know, they're kind of match race each other and stuff at, at, down the Florida area. And they're, um, it's, it's an inline six that's a Mercury Marine, I think they call it Verata. It's a, it's a 400, 400 horse motor. But when you get down to it and you just, what they call the power head, which is the, the business part of that thing, when you take it off the outboard, um, you know, it's an inline six. It's uh, it's got a screw blower on it. It's dual overhead cam, four valve per cylinder, intercooled, um, fuel injected. I mean, they're they're really something, you know. And and they're they're not huge. They're 158 inches or so. So you know they're already making 400. So to step it up another 100 horse or so is it's really no easy task because it's already starting out really good power per inch. And uh, so we we've been working on a program for those, and and uh, those are one of the things that you take home with you as far as in your in your mind. You, know, you wake up at three in the morning, and you're thinking, well, if I could do this, maybe it would be a little bit better. But we're we're still a little bit. We're not a hundred percent sure of a few things. So we, we've worked on four four or five of them. We've been doing a lot of dynoing on them here at the shop, but uh, we we still have to find out a few more things about how they act in the boat before we're, you know, full bore on doing them for people. Um, 
we're not 100% sure about the exhaust where it comes out and if it's got back pressure and things like that because we don't have a we don't have a boat here to put it in, you know. And the exhaust comes out the middle of the propeller and there so there's a bunch of unknowns we're still working on, but that's a cool project. And and they again, that that's another masterpiece of an engine. I mean, it's really nicely built and and uh you know, those guys have to they have to build those things and give them to people and give warranties on them and stuff and they're out there racing around in them so they're you know they they do pretty good at staying together, and they probably make what three horsepower per inch or something the way they come. Can we put one of those in a competition eliminator dragster? <laughs> I would guess you could. You might have to redo the oil pan a little bit because they're used to standing on end. You know, but uh, they're they're actually if if you look at some other racy stuff like some of the some of the Nissans and Toyotas and that that are inline sixes, they're very similar. You know, very similar stuff. Pretty, it's pretty cool. The only thing is, it's you know, it's got water cooling everywhere, and uh, and the and the way the water works. But you know, it took us a little while to get up to speed on running them because we had to kind of build a dyno for it. But uh, they're they're coming along. It's it's something that's different. And it's fun to work on. Keith, any final uh, thoughts on that before we move on with John? No, I, I agree with you know what John says. You look at the you know the modern engines that are out there today, and these are really, you know, I'll call it slightly detuned race engines. Uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of very high end companies that are designing these, and you know, if we're looking at X amount of power out of X amount of cubic inches with a given fuel, uh, as, as John said, you're going to kind of end up with similar, you know, designs, combustion chambers, you know, ports, uh, port locations. You know, it, it, we're using. The same kind of programs to design stuff. I look at the three different, you know, major brands of NASCAR engines, and though they're all different, they're still very similar. Uh, it, it's it's interesting how they're kind of all evolving to. Again, there's differences, but the you know the basic designs are very very similar. And you know, the horsepower per cubic inch output out of out of this modern stuff just just like I say, it blows my mind. I, you know, John was talking about the you know the the V8 version in the in the Merc motor. And, you know, I looked at one of those and got to see a cutaway version. It reminded me, uh, you know, back into the early 2000s of the Ilmore-designed, you know, Chevrolet IRL engine. You know, it was, you know, I'm looking at a lot of things, and it's, like, very, very similar. And, you know, that was, you know, an 11,000 RPM IndyCar engine. Here it is now. It's a boat motor. Uh, so, uh, well, and not I, taking I, anything away from it being a boat, you know. <laughs> I think some of these, some of the, uh, that QC4, that big one that we work on, uh, some of that stuff was done in England, I believe. It was they had some help yeah. from Lotus, maybe, or or some of that. But uh, um, still, it's 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 just a big version of a big Ford Coyote in a way. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. There, the, yeah. I, like I said, I saw one at the Bear Jackson auction a couple of years ago, and uh, kind of when that was, I don't want to say it was first coming out. They had it on display, and it was a big cutaway. It was the first time I'd seen it, and it was it was very very cool piece. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, the boats weigh 14,000 pounds when they're full of fuel. This is a race boat, so that's a, that's a lot of weight to get going. Absolutely. You need every bit of it to yeah. get, go, get it to go 180 with that thing. It's got to have some pretty good, 
pretty good juice. Pure insanity. John, at the conclusion of all of our interviews here on Hidden Horsepower, we got a loaded archive of uh, you know engine masters such as yourself. I don't know if anyone has won nine times, though. We ask for a nugget of advice for the up-and-coming engine builder, the guy who is interested, who's hardworking, uh, maybe a bit of wisdom that you have learned over the years that you can impart to that person as they begin their journey and start uh, you know, working on these engines, maybe open a shop, maybe follow your footsteps in some way, shape, or form. Is there anything that you can share that you've learned over the years? Wow. That, that, that could take a while. Um, you know, if you're, if you're getting into this business, you know, the best thing is really work, uh, find a, a place to work and, and learn it that way. Um, you know, now I've got three guys here that work for me that went to the School of Automotive Machinists in Houston, and I, and that place is awesome. I love those guys that work here, and the, and the school is really good. So, you know, I, I would say that we would hire more guys out of that school, too. So if if a guy's really interested... That's a pretty big commitment to go there, but it's I don't know if there's any place better and they sure learn a lot. But if if not that you need to work at a at a at a place that uh that has some good quality people that run it and um you know, you need to be able to do as much as you can on your own. In other words, and that's the way I I kind of always went around it. It was I couldn't I couldn't wait on somebody else I had to do it myself. And if I couldn't do it myself, then I had to learn how, and I had to figure out what equipment it took. But um, you, you just have to be careful not to run yourself out of money, and we still do that every day. We make sure we don't run out of money and buy too much stuff that you can't pay for. You know, so there's a whole lot of things like that that are sort of intertwined. You know, you have to, you have to keep learning every day. Um, you know, don't run out of money again. Uh, and that, that, so that, that means like huge payments and stuff will, will sink you pretty quick. Um, and, uh, if you can get in with a good group of people and learn from them, it's invaluable. It's like the guys that come here, uh, if, if they didn't go to a school or, and even if they did go to the school, there's a few people here that have been doing this for 50 years, myself included, you know, we've got some older people here too. And, and, uh, all of a sudden you're getting 50 years worth of knowledge from somebody for nothing, you know? And, uh, it, it's, it, it's something that's hard to learn on your own. This whole business is, is, uh, you have to be like a sponge and, and, um, absorb everything. And, and, and even, even here, you know, the big thing too is, we learn something new every day and don't ever think you know all there is to know because for sure you don't, you know, no matter what, there's somebody better somewhere. So um, you just have to kind of keep humble and, and just keep working hard and you'll get there. He is a nine-time engine master and uh, amazing interview. John, thank you so much. We appreciate you for coming on Hidden Horsepower. And thank you for sharing so much information about, uh, you know, your, your coming up uh, right through to today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Enjoyed it, guys. You bet. Thanks, John. Again, I really appreciate it. We'll we'll talk soon. And uh, again, I can't tell you how much I, I very much appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know how busy a guy you are, and uh, you know it's, it's hard to you know carve out that extra time every day. And uh, again, thank you so very much, and thanks for being a great customer of ours. Oh, no problem, man. I'm going to sign out. There he goes, John Kazi. Wow, Keith, that is exactly why we do this show. Yeah, exactly. He's uh, like I said, anybody out there that you know 
doesn't know who he is, like I said in the beginning, uh, you know, Google him. Look at some of the things he's done. Look at some of the incredibly crazy things he's come up for with his engine masters, you know, winning engines. It's, uh, it, like I say, to me, it's mind-boggling some of the things that he's done. And, you know, once you, like I said earlier, once you see it and you, you visualize it, you go, ah, it makes perfect sense. But never would I have had that original thought. That, that's what makes John one of those special guys. Amazing stuff. Be sure to click subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you like what you're hearing, we've got more to come. And Keith, the thing that he mentioned about the rings, about the pistons, about the parts, about the pieces, it is all so true for the engine builder out there, whether they got an LS or a Coyote or something that they're working on that may be as exotic or not, and they can all get give you a call to get started off with direction for their piston rings. Absolutely they can. As I've said in the past, you know, make us your first call, not your last. You're diving into this project, you know, give us a call. That's what we're here for, whether it's myself or any of the other guys. Uh, you know, we want to know what you're working on and, and help guide you down that path before you get down the path standing there going, wow, there's no rings or I can't find what I want. Uh, that simple phone call or that email uh, you can contact me, Keith J at totalseal.com or any of the other guys here, and we can help guide you down that path to make sure that you have the most successful build and get the right parts that are right for what you're doing. And that's great. And on a future episode, Keith, I've got to, we got to tell everybody about the big tour of the Total Seal factory that you gave me a couple of weeks back. I'm very eager to talk about that on a future episode. we got a lot of stuff coming up on Hidden Horsepower. I am looking forward to it. I did want to say thank you on the air for that. It was an eye-opening experience, and now I genuinely know what's going on behind the scenes and where you are when you're doing these podcasts. Yes, you sure do. It, it is a, an amazing thing. People, I've, I've never had anybody come in here that I, you know, that I haven't shown the place to, and, and, and what we do that hasn't walked away going, wow, I didn't realize it was that complicated. I didn't realize there was that many steps to the processes. And, and there are. And most, of, most manufacturing is pretty involved, and a lot of people just don't realize you know, what it takes to get it from you know, that raw piece of metal to a finished part and in your hands. Uh, it's pretty involved, and I'm very, very glad to be able to give Joe that tour and, and show him you know, a little bit about what we do. Exactly. We'll talk a little bit more about it on a future episode of Hidden Horsepower. Keith Jones, thank you so much. A great job once again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. He's Keith Jones, the Director of Technical Sales for Total Seal. I'm Joe Costello. You can get me on Twitter at WFO Joe. More episodes of Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal to come. We'll see you next time.